My subject is demons, fallen angels, and hypocrisy. As best I can tell, this is a a conglomeration of at least two, if not three, suggestions for talks. When I first got it, I thought I'll make it two talks. I think I'm going to make it one talk. We'll see how that works. But I want to begin with an illustration talk a little bit about demons and fallen angels, and then transition into hypocrisy. But I want to begin with an illustration that's not certainly new to me. I don't know where it first came up. I know J. Oswald Sanders wrote about it, and I know others have used it many times throughout the years, about a chess game. And in a group this size, several of you play chess. Very good likelihood, none of you are very good. Maybe I owe an apology to somebody, but I find a lot of people think they are, but really aren't. I used to play it and found it to be very time-consuming and really haven't played it for probably 20, 30 years. But as the story goes, a man by the name of Paul Morphy was a chess champion in his day. And he was taking a break from the chess tournament circuit. He also liked art. So he was touring Europe and going to, among other things, various art studios. And he came across an interesting picture that's been depicted over and over in various forms. I almost brought a copy of a picture up here, but none of them really, I thought, I appreciated that much. But it was a picture of a chess match. And being a chess master, this caught his eye, and he stopped at this particular picture, and he probably looked at it for 30, 40 minutes. And it was obvious that these two beings were having a chess match, and one of them was winning. And he could tell that by the expressions on their face. And as he looked a little closer, he came to the realization that what the artist was rendering was one of the players was the depiction of Satan. The other player was a depiction of just a man. And as he looked at this picture, Satan's face was giddy. It was smiling. It was smirking. The face of the other man was downtrodden. You could see the perspiration on his brow. And he wondered what the artist was trying to say. And then he looked at the top and he saw the title of this painting. And the title was Checkmate. Now those of you that play chess, and maybe even if you don't play chess, checkmate in chess is another term for I gotcha. He found this fascinating, and he just studied the painting. Then he studied the chessboard. And after about another 20 minutes, he went to the curator of the museum and said, Would you happen to have a chess set? They looked around and found one. He brought it. And he laid the chessboard right down at the bottom of the painting, and he placed the various men just where they were positioned in the painting, the, the bishops, the knights, the rooks, the pawns, the king, the queen. had to be a king or it would have really been over. And he studied that chessboard for another 30 minutes. 
And then he really began to smile. And he looked up at the painting and he said, Sir, I wish you could hear me because you've got the last move. And if you make the right move, you will win. Why do I begin with that? Each one of us has the last move. And if we make the right last move, there is no checkmate by Satan. Many will be checkmated by Satan, but it will be be because they did not make the right last move. You know, when you think about the Bible, and I don't want to be flippant about this, especially in the Old Testament, it's almost like a chess match. God makes angels counter-move. Angels rebel. God makes man counter-move. Satan deceives Adam and Eve. God brings Seth into the lineage. Satan brings Nimrod, the founder of Babylon. God goes to Ur and gets Abraham. Satan leads the children of Israel into Egyptian bondage. Back and forth. Back and forth. Now, it's not back and forth in in the sense that there's any doubt who's going to win. But you get this move, counter move, move, counter move. And then we get to the end of the Old Testament. We've got 400 years of silence. God sends his son. Satan counters with the temptations. Jesus counters by defeating the temptations with the word of God. Satan moves to the crucifixion. And and I can see Satan's face being just like in that picture. A smirking, giddy, "I, I won. He's on the cross. He's dead. But God had the last move, didn't he? It's called the resurrection. It's called the resurrection. What's the difference between demons and fallen angels? Spelling. For all practical purpose, I consider demons and fallen angels to be different terms for the same thing. They were created. God created all the angels. We're told that in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. We're also told that in Psalms 148 verses 2 through 5. In which it says, enlisting the angels among other things, they were all created. They're all created beings. But some of them didn't stay with the Lord. You know the story. Satan fell. And as we will see in Revelations 12, 4, possibly a third of the angels fell with Satan. And I believe that's what we, for practical purposes, call the demons that we will be talking about. They fell. There's no indication that they had a plan of salvation that would bring them back up. If they did, I'm not told about it, or I'm not aware of it. If you ever wonder how much God loves you, remember He gave you a way back up that He did not have to give. We need to be pleased with it. 
In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about the angels who left their previous estate. In Jude, verse 6, same thing. Revelations 12, 4. It's a passage that, that may well imply that a third of the angels fell. I'm not dogmatic about that, but it does talk about a third of the stars or the angels falling with Satan. But be that as it may, the fallen angels are the demons that we find referred to in the Scriptures. They are the demons that we have to deal with today. If all you see is what you see, then you do not see all there is to see. Because there is a lot going on that our physical eyes won't see. If we had spiritual eyes, and I don't mean if you were spiritual, because many of you, if not all of you are, but if we had spiritual eyes, it would be an amazing thing, I believe, we would see fluttering around. Holy angels, demonic angels. But it's as we believe only what we see physically that we really miss the most important things that are to be seen. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10, 11, and 12, not an unfamiliar passage to you, but an important passage for this subject. We're going to find out what really should be getting our attention, at least from a defensive or from a concerned standpoint. In Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about various things, and he's getting ready to go into the armor that we put on. But he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the tricks, the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. People are not our problem. Verse 12 is our problem. I know people often seem to be our problem because they are the physical manifestation of our problems many times. But it's not people that are our problems. It's not flesh and blood that we wrestle with. It's the demonic influences that are behind the flesh and blood. Or maybe behind the people. People are really just the agents. Whatever our struggles are, they are rooted in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. And to successfully navigate this realm, we must be able to successfully navigate the spiritual realm. It's our conflict in the spiritual realm that really dictates how we're going to be successful or unsuccessful in this realm. And the demons are much of that. The Bible talks to us about ministering spirits. That phrase comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And it is applicable, I think, to God's angels who minister to those who are His children. The Bible never promises that God's angels are going to minister to non-Christians or people who aren't the children of God, but 
those who are heirs of salvation in the King James in Hebrews 1.14 do have that capability. Some people look at that as if we each have our own individual guardian angel. That could be true. I'm not dogmatic about it, but Matthew chapter 18 makes me wonder if maybe we don't have multiple angels that can be there to assist us. I'm a little hesitant to say each one of us have our own personal angel because it would then appear to me some of us have better angels looking after us than others. (laughs) Do I have a better angel than Paul did? Because I haven't been shipwrecked. I haven't been imprisoned. I haven't been whipped. No, I wouldn't want to say that I do. I certainly don't deserve it. But whichever way you want to look at it, God's ministering spirits or angels are there to help those who are the children of God. That having been said, would there not be some logic to wondering if there aren't demonic spirits that specifically target each one of us who watch and look for our weaknesses and feed upon those weaknesses in ways that can make our spiritual battle much more difficult. As one studies the Bible, we encounter demons all throughout it. Sometimes in the King James and maybe some other translations, you'll find the term devils in the plural. I don't like that because there's only one Satan. It really should be translated demons in the plural because there are a multiplicity of demonic angels, if I can use that term. Critics of the Bible often dismiss these accounts as cultural superstitions. But the reality of demons is not to be judged on the basis of 20 or 21st century experiences, but on whether or not the Bible is credible in what it says. I don't believe in demons because I've ever seen them. I believe in them because the Bible says they exist. And I hope that's the basis that we all take to this discussion. When we look at demonic or satanic demon or methodology, pardon me, the Bible talks about wiles or schemes. That's just another way of saying deceptive strategies. Demons under the guidance of Satan, utilize deceptive strategies. In Genesis chapter 3, what did Satan do? He came to Adam and Eve with a deceptive strategy. And nothing's changed. That's the way it works. But we need to remember, the only power that Satan and his demons have over us is the power we allow them to have over us. Because the Bible clearly says... He that is in us is greater than he that is without. If I am influenced by demonic suggestions or influences, or if I give myself to them, that is my choice. James says, resist him and he'll flee from you. Our problem maybe is in the resisting part. So now we come to the next part of our lesson. And this is the issue of hypocrisy. And what I want to present to you, at least for your thought, is that hypocrisy rides a demonic horse. What do I mean by that? 
hypocrisy rides in on the back of demonic thoughts. Now, we could put any sin up there and probably make that same statement. But my assignment is not any sin. My assignment is the sin of hypocrisy. And I believe it's one of the, I'm going to say great, but not great in the sense of good, most effective strategies Satan has. Hypocrisy comes to us in two forms. There are many subsections to this, but to me it comes to us in two forms. Number one, it comes as one who verbally claims beliefs, but then fails to live them. They talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And that can be very much a form of hypocrisy. But hypocrisy can also come in the form of someone who lives by righteousness, but really doesn't believe them. So you can be a hypocrite, or hypocrisy can take the form of someone who believes, but doesn't do, or someone that does, but doesn't really believe. And I think we see it in each of our lives, probably at various times, and in others, in both ways. But the motivation is not to please God in terms of hypocrisy. Usually we think of hypocrisy as trying to please men, and I believe that to be true, but I put self there because I think lots of times hypocrisy or hypocrites are trying to please themselves. Now, they're part of mankind, but it's not always to impress people around them. Sometimes it is to please themselves. Duplicity is when our minds and our conduct are no longer in sync. We think one way and act another way. We think good, act bad. We think bad and act good. Either way. When our minds and our conduct are not in sync, we have duplicity. And we have the fertile ground for hypocrisy. One of the classic passages on hypocrisy is Matthew chapter 6. That is not a surprise to those of you that are even cursory Bible students. But I do want to make a couple of comments about this passage. Because the discussion of this without at least touching on it would be probably rather incomplete. In the first part, first half of the sixth chapter of Matthew, he talks about the concept of of hypocrisy, and he talks about it in three different particular areas. He talks about it in the area of prayer, he talks about it in, in, in the area of almsgiving, he talks about it in the area of fasting. But the principle behind all of these is hypocrisy. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And the phrase in the King James that is translated to be seen is the Greek word theomai, from which we get our word theater. And this concept of being seen by men is to is the concept of being hypocritical like a stage on an, an actor on a stage. I'm not saying that actors on a stage are being hypocritical because we all understand that they are playing a role. But in our lives and in the lives of people, when they are hypocritical, they are playing a role that really doesn't portray who they are. 
basically what I believe Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 6 is don't be theatrical. Be honest. Be sincere in that which you do. When we go through the Bible, there's an ugly list of hypocrites. Just an ugly list. And I, I, if I'd have, I couldn't have put all the names on this slide, but if I could have, you couldn't have been able to read it. So I just picked a few. There was Cain. I don't know what happened to Abel. There was Absalom, Joab, men in the king's court who would put their arms around another and Stab them with a dagger. Judas, we're familiar with him. Ananias and Sapphira. Simon the sorcerer. The list goes on, but you know where the list ends up. It ends up maybe at my feet. It ends up maybe at your feet. I want to talk a little bit about the effects of hypocrisy. And I want to talk about it in three areas or upon three people. I want to first talk about the effects of, a, of hypocrisy on the hypocrite. The effects of hypocrisy on those who engage in it. And to be honest, probably all of us have engaged in it to some extent and dabbled in it. That shouldn't make us feel better, but I think honesty is not a, a bad thing. But the Bible says God hates it. But the effect hypocrisy has upon the hypocrite is not simply the terribleness of engaging in something that God hates, but eventually the hypocrite, if he's not very, very careful, is going to persuade himself that he's okay. He's going to get more calloused. It's going to bother him less. Nothing seemed to happen to me, so I must be okay, or at least I'll dismiss it from my mind. Now I'm going to meddle for just a moment. Anybody here got trash in your house? Well, I know some of you do, and the rest of you are glad you've never invited me over. Everybody has some trash in their house. And trash is not good because it's trashy. There's just nothing really good about trash. But it even gets worse. What's bad is not really the trash. That's bad. But you know what's really worse than the trash? It's all the things that it invites in. Anybody here have ants? Cockroaches? Mice? You know, I often hear people say, well, we had five turkeys out in our front yard, and they were just beautiful. The people don't say, man, we had four cockroaches. You should have seen them. It was wonderful. Now, you've had them. But we don't really share that too much, do we? When hypocrisy is in our lives, that's trash. 
And trash always invites something in. And hypocritical trash in our lives invites the demonic realm into our lives even deeper. So now we're not just dealing with trash, but we're dealing with the evil influences that it attracts. So a hypocrite or a hypocrisy just gets worse and worse and worse, just like trash gets worse and worse and worse. Even if you don't add any more trash to it, it invites things in. Ants, roaches, mice, they don't come where there's not food. But we have those little crumbs on the counter that maybe we can't even see, or we've got a plate we forgot to put in somewhere. And they have a feast while you're snoring. You know, sometimes we just like to hide the trash. You ever had someone call and said, I'm going to come over and see you in five minutes? You want to see people move fast? (laughs) Trash goes under the bed, it goes in the closets, it goes into the garage. We don't get rid of it, but we want to hide it. Now, I'm not saying if you put things under your bed, you're a hypocrite. Totally. But we're trying to look better than we really are. That's what hypocrisy is. Some things you just can't hide. Most of you, if you go into a car that is owned by someone who smokes, you're going to know it right like you go into a house. Some of you have probably thought about buying a house. You walked in and you could smell smoke and out you went. I'm not saying that's the worst thing a person can do. I'm just saying you just can't hide those things. Sometimes we settle for trash management rather than trash removal. I think that's a little bit what Paul talked about to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, having the form of godliness. He didn't say having God, having the form, the appearance of it. That's trash management. Hypocrisy needs to be ridded. But it also has an effect on unbelievers. For the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Several times in the New Testament it talks about how the name of God is tarnished because of the conduct of, quote, believers. Well, hypocrisy is going to tarnish the name of God in the minds of believers, unbelievers. It has an effect. It gives them an excuse. It doesn't save their souls. It doesn't acquit them of their sin. But it gives them an excuse, doesn't it? Thirdly, it dishonors God. Who do we think we're going to fool? We probably can't fool our brothers and sisters or our husbands or our wives or our children. But we're sure not going to fool God, are we? We're told, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. Hypocrisy has all kinds of ramifications. 
maybe the saddest is, is the dishonoring of God, but the most personally damaging is, is the effect it has upon ourselves. We need to remember sin is not slain if it's simply covered up. Sometimes we get engaged in what I'll call spiritual makeup. I'm not against makeup because because one man once talking about to a young married couple the guy said I didn't know she looked like that of course you didn't if she was going to let you see what she looked like you'd have never married her (laughs) there is a place for makeup but not spiritual makeup trying to gloss over it trying to hide it Sin is not slain if it's only internalized. Okay, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I'm going to internally lust and think about it. That doesn't do away with the sin. It's just maybe the exchanging of one sin for another, but I think that's probably a step backward because if I commit adultery, you can come and help me. If I'm doing it all inside my head, you may not know anything about it. And how can you help me if you don't know anything about it? Hypocrisy remains if sin is simply exchanged for sin. No, hypocrisy is only removed when the mental and the physical are in sync. I believe hypocrisy is often fed by rationalization. The longer one lives in hypocrisy, the more likely it is we're going to keep thinking, well, it's not that bad. Or, nothing bad's happened to me. Nobody's jumped down my throat. Well, maybe somebody should or shouldn't jump down my throat, but it's my responsibility to be right with God, and it's your responsibility to be right with God. And you and I are going to have to address the consequences of it if we don't do that. And hypocrisy is often fed by insensitivity. The longer we are hypocritical, the less sensitive our hearts are to what's going on. I don't know completely what role the demons play in this, but I do believe they are there. They can't make us be hypocritical, but they are there when they see that as our weakness. You know, good sports teams or battle armies... They look for their enemy, their target's weakness, and then they play on it. I think Satan and his demons do exactly that. They look and know your weakness and mine, and they play on that, and they often will feed into the realm of hypocrisy. As I wrap this up, I began with the game of chess. I'm going to end with the game of Monopoly. I used to like to play chess. I'm not sure that I should have. And I did not win all the time. I might have won half the time. I looked for people I could beat. (laughs) But there was something gratifying about winning. But it was just a game. I also used to enjoy Monopoly. I think I do still enjoy Monopoly. It just takes too long. 
unless you play with people who aren't any good. But a good Monopoly game can easily take three or four hours. And you get all these properties. I used to like, my goal in Monopoly was to get Boardwalk and Park Place. Because they cost the most. And the rent was the highest. And then I'd get a house on them. And then I'd get two houses on them. And then I'd get a hotel on them. And then I'd say, oh, I hope Rick lands on them. <laughs> or whoever. <laughs> Just a name out of the blue. Because <laughs> when you get a hotel on Boardwalk, you crush them. And you win. Now, I've been on the other side of that horse. But it was invigorating, the competition. But you know, eventually somebody wins. And then we put the board, the money, the houses, the hotels, all back in the box. And you know, that was always kind of sad. Because now I'm back to reality. I'm not Donald Trump. I'm, I'm, I'm just me. I'm not Howard Hughes, for those of you old enough to remember that name. No, it all goes back in the box. And you come back to reality. One day, we're going to be up here. Or we're going to be in a funeral home. And they're going to put us back in a box. This life is wonderful. But reality will really set in at that moment. And if you are a child of God, it will be a reality that is beyond your wildest imagination. And if you are not a child of God, it will be a reality worse than your worst nightmare. That's simply a fact. But the game doesn't go on forever. No, we all going to go back in a box. As one man said, none of us are going to get out of this alive. And then, the old saying is so true. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. No boardwalks, no park place, no railroads. Just what you and I have done for Christ. That's it. That's it. If you have not yet done for Christ what He's asked you to do, and that is to come, confess your sins, repent and be baptized and begin an obedient walk with Him, then you have nothing to take of any value once the box is closed and put up. That's the invitation. This life passes so quickly.
And only what we do for Christ will last. If we can help anybody in any way tonight, we invite you to come as we stand for our invitation.